Blog Talk Radio. Yo, this is your boy, G-Ski Rocks. And this is going out to the lovely, lovely women of the world. I know sometimes you have to make a hard decision. But I want you to think about this. This song is going out to the mighty, mighty world of women. At that clinic, and you have to make a decision. Is it life? Is it death? I know you must decide. Either way, either choice, it is a long ride. Raise a child, single mom, and will the father be there? You had your fun that night, but I don't think he cares. Bring a life into this world is a big responsibility. Women, can you hear me? Each life is precious, so I ask that you think about it. There are people that can help you, so don't doubt it. It's demanding and you may not have much to give So hear me out when I say Just let them live I want you to know that they're precious
to Pro-Life Fridays Radio. It is Friday, September 20th, 2013, and I want to welcome our audience to another great broadcast of Pro-Life Fridays Radio. The number to call in, if you have any questions for any of our hosts, we're all here today, Woohoo! is 760-542-3907 to talk to any of our hosts or our guest who is coming later on in the broadcast. So, hey, Melissa. Hey, Thomas. Glad you guys could be here. Hi, everybody. (laughs) Happy Friday. We made it sweet. Lord, thank God. Praise God. I know. How you doing, Thomas? Oh, I'm Uh, How are you? All right. Just checking. Couldn't hear you for a minute. <laughs> this is the new fresher, bolder, mellower me. <laughs> okay. Uh, sprinkle some pepper on you, and you can be spicy too. So, uh, what do you have for us today? What do I have today? Besides the scripture and all that good stuff. Did you get that little article that I posted on your page that I told you that you probably need to talk about that today? I saw it. And yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's get to our scripture and get to praying for God's sovereignty over this show, and we can get to talking about stuff. All righty. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19 says, God speaking through the prophet said, I record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Therefore, therefore, he's giving you, he's giving you the only viable option there. Therefore, choose life so that you and your seed might live. Dear Heavenly Father, in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we give you glory, honor, and praise. Father, first of all, I want to thank you for the new directions, new levels of Pro-Life Fridays Radio, bigger and better things, wider reach that you're preparing for us, Lord God. Father, I thank you for Melissa, Letitia, the listeners, our guests, Lord God, as we embark in this battle to protect all life, not just the life of the unborn, but the torn lives of those post-aborted mothers and every other life that is affected affected negatively in any way, whether it's the Egyptian and Syrian Christians, Lord God, and even the non-Christians, Lord God, who, who have been, who have been abused by those who have no regard for life. Because I pray that you just anoint this show, anoint our hopes and our guests today, and that our interview would impact the lives of those who are listening and those who will listen later in our time. In the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we give you glory, honor, and praise. Amen. And with that, Amen. All right. Um, yeah, so if you it, – it's, it's for me, it's back to the basics here on VLFR. Uh, if you have paid attention to the news at all in a week or more, 
you will have learned that there was a successful recall of two Democrat state senators in Colorado over gun control laws. You will have learned that about the Navy Yard shooting, followed by the president calling for more gun control laws before partying at the feet of 12 slain military personnel. The trip around another cycle of debt ceiling continuing resolution debates with the House ultimately voting to defund Obamacare. And you will have learned that Hobby Lobby is getting taken. Yeah, they're getting taken. They're taken to the Supreme Court of the U.S. by the Obama administration to force it to comply with the HHS health control mandate. You may be asking, what do these stories have in common? And I'll throw in the story that Thomas had uh, one had alluded to, which we will talk about at the trail, tail end, because it, it fits, too. You may be asking, what do these have to do with Pro-Life Fridays Radio, and what do they have in common? Well, like I said, we are going back to basics here today. Believe it or not, all these issues bring out points of view that either are pro-life or pro-something else. So the top two that I mentioned were uh, involved gun control laws. And I really think, this is kind of a rhetorical question, is there any clearer, a clearer pro-life issue than gun control? And all the people kind of tap their tap their fingers on the table going, hmm, hmm, hmm. Well, it is kind of obvious. Gun control laws are about, as liberals like to put it, saving people's lives. It's about the children. And you're going to find out why it's about the children is significant later. Gun control is probably one of the more obvious non-social issue, pro-life issue, that we have in the news, and it's everywhere. You can't avoid it because guns are the big debate issue in Congresses, in, in House, in, uh, I'm sorry, state, state legislatures and U.S. Congress and U.S. Senate, and from the President, and it has been for a long time. It's always been a big issue. And what have we learned from the gun control debates? Well, if you're a liberal, the presence of guns creates violence. It creates death because if there's a gun around, somebody will will get shot. And it's kind of axiomatic. Now, if you're not a liberal and you look at guns as a, as a tool of the violent, then you will realize that violent people will commit crime and kill others regardless if there's a gun present or not. But what is the real issue at hand? It's whether or not people are saved, their lives are saved, when we have gun control laws or when we don't have gun control laws. I think the numbers speak for themselves. Since, what is it, the 1980s? In the last last 20 to 25 years, where gun ownership in the United States has increased per capita, the actual gun murder rate in the United States has fallen 
do half of what it used to be. And this is despite all the arguments saying that gun control laws can save lives. And as we have seen in the past few years with Colorado, with Newtown, Connecticut, with, I don't know, throw in Navy shipyard, Navy Yard shootings and Nadal Hassan, I mean Fort Hood. These are just examples I can think of off the top of my head of shootings and mass killings of people that happened where gun laws have been the most uh, aggressive. And so the bottom line is, from a conservative perspective and a pro-life perspective, if you want to save the most people's lives, you will allow people to have, the government should allow people to have a firearm of their own if they choose, in order to protect themselves from the real crazies that are running around with guns shooting people. Because for some reason, liberals can't get it through their heads that gun laws don't get obeyed by those crazies that are running around shooting people. So passing more laws restricting gun ownership only arms crazy people with guns. And this is a huge contentious issue because for some reason America has start, is starting to understand that stricter gun laws don't actually keep people safe and they actually end up with more people getting killed from crazies running around with guns shooting people than if we were all had our Second Amendment rights to bear arms. So this is very clearly gun control is a pro-life issue. But do we walk around and say, no, we can't talk about gun control in church? Because, I, well, I don't know. I, I think a lot of people are anti-gun in church, at least the church I go to. <laughs> I, don't know about, I don't know about all of you, but I go to a very unique church full of people that don't think about these issues as deeply as I would like them to. But oh, my old church, I was going to say my old <laughs> church, we had two strapped on people there at all times. <laughs> we right. weren't taking any chances, you know? <laughs> right, right. Well, you know what? Our our pastor, uh, our head pastor, has received threats uh, because I guess he's, if you get to a certain level of uh, notoriety, I guess he's been locally or nationally, I mean, I guess the bar, the benchmark is if you write a book, if you're a pastor and you write a book, I guess you have finally arrived at that uh, at that benchmark where I guess people start to take notice of you and start making threats to you and your family. Well, anyway, uh, he's yeah. so our church has started to have security measures implemented in our church because uh, right after the shooting of the pastor in Illinois, and if you, have, if you recall, I think that was about three to four years ago where uh, a pastor was shot by somebody who walked in with a gun and uh, shot the pastor on a Sunday morning. I, I believe it was a Sunday morning. And so the week right after that, most churches with large congregations just were like, let's make sure we have security in the church, You know, something that we didn't really think about before. But would it make any difference um, if the if the security measures – left out armed security. Yes, it would. 
Because what sense would it make to have security personnel armed with just pepper spray or whatever, or maybe a stun gun? How would that help anybody if a shooter walks into a church and stands 15 feet away and shoots somebody? How are you going to ever get to that person in time before that bullet leaves the gun? You're not. So that is yeah. why uh, security personnel, um, it's a touchy issue, I know. It's a really touchy issue. Security personnel are better prepared when they have the tool that they might need. And this is all about preventing. This is all about prevention. So you need to have your tools, the right tools to be to prevent a, a gun crime. You need a gun to prevent a gun crime. And somehow that that truth kind of escapes certain people, but it is something that at least the very least the state of Colorado has realized. Because in light of the strict gun control measures that the state legislatures, um, the state legislature in Colorado had passed, they recalled two state senators, one of them being the president of the Senate, over gun control. And I remember last week is a huge brouhaha where even Debbie Wasserman Schultz stood up and said, I think there has been some kind of violation of democratic principles here, uh, this very unlawful recall, which was done completely by the book, totally grassroots led. And here she is, I don't know, God bless her, she can't say anything else, can she? She's not paid to say anything else. So maybe it's the money talking and not not Debbie Blossom and Schultz. But anyway, it left her lips, and uh, I thought it was laughable because it really is. She said one syllable too many. It was a violation of Democrat principles to recall liberal politicians when they err. So So people are catching on. People are catching on to the fact that gun control measures do not save lives. We've had had so many examples where people are disarmed, helpless, running for their lives, dying by the dozen. And a person running around with a gun isn't stopped for much longer than it should have taken. Much longer. And our our last example was the Navy shipyard. Am I saying that right? The Navy yard shooting. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, you, yes, Thomas, hey. you want to say something? No, I have a question for you. Okay. Did you hear anything about the mass shooting today? Uh, the mass shooting today? So, which one, in Chicago or in the Navy Yard? Oh, was it at the ding, park? Ding, 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 ding. Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> have you Did heard you hear anything about, about the mass shooting? Oh yeah, I heard Just a about little it. Bit. Not on the stream media, but I heard about it. So, my question is this: Where's the moral outrage? Because there were there were thirteen people shot in a park, including a little three year old uh, boy who's in critical condition, who hit him in the head. But you know, it's been kind of eerily. Silent from 
our president in chief. Uh, I mean, even it's just been conservatives that's been talking about it, but maybe that's just because who knows? I don't know. That was just one shooting, actually, Thomas. There were a total overnight. There were twenty-three people shot in Chicago. Two of them died. So you're talking about in one night in one city, twenty-three people were shot. Yeah, yeah, it's getting to be an average daily occurrence. So, like, we're talking two dozen of people per night, per day, being shot in Chicago. Yep, but we need rush to save save the Syrian rebels, but we can't even rush in to save our own. But I don't Right, well... You know, gun control, gun control. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's impossible for get somebody in Chicago to get shot because they have such strict gun laws that nobody should be able to even possess a gun. Oops. <laughs> yeah, uh, someone so... forgot to tell the queen that. So, I, you know, I, I want to challenge the public at large. If we're going to talk about pro-life issues and then sh- then relegate them off to the issue of, oh, that's just a social issue, then we ought not to be talking about gun control at all. We, exactly. The president has no right to stand up right after 12 people were, were killed in Washington, Washington, D.C. and say that we need stricter gun control measures, and he was he's going to impose them on the United States without the act of Congress. He's going mm. to... Wait, did he say that? Executive, Wait, did, I think he did. I yeah, think, he, yeah, did. I I think he said he was going to flex his muscle. Yeah. <laughs> he's going to legislate by executive order um, Is he gun control measures. Okay. Time out for a minute. Is he trying to throw this country into a civil war? That's exactly what would happen. And honestly, there's 89 million armed American citizens. We outnumber law enforcement 8, 9, 10, and 1. What is he trying to do? Help me understand this, Letitia, Melissa. Help me understand what's he trying to do. I don't know. It's we not can only my speculate. My <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can oh. only speculate about what all this means, you know, and and what is it? 72 million rounds of of hollow point ammo being bought by the what was it? The IRS or the no, Department of Homeland no, no, it the wasn't. The, no, this is Social Security Administration. There we go. I got it now. Really? And you wonder. Oh. <laughs> Wait. All right, we're getting way off track. Okay. Yeah. We're <laughs> uh, All right. Um, so uh, the other example I have is oh, we're talking about uh, Congress's part. As well, the trip around another cycle of debt ceiling continuing resolution debates. 
And, I mean, we were here last August. We were here, I think, another time between last August, between a year ago and today, about continuing debt ceiling resolution debates, trying to kick their debt ceiling up higher, to delay this football of responsibility. Everybody seems to want to just punt that football away from them, raise our debt ceiling so that our government can spend more money and get ourselves in much deeper trouble. I don't even know if it matters anymore, um, the amount of debt that our country has amassed in the last, oh, you know, even extending back to the Bush administration, I would tell, I'll say the last eight years, is, is, is so absurd. I don't think it even matters anymore how high they put it. it. We are so neck deep in trouble, financial, economic trouble, that this is, this is of proportions that will not be solved. It won't be solved in a couple of generations. We have effectively killed off the financial prosperity of our, our children and our grandchildren, as I stand here today. <laughs> and this country, it, it's going to be 25, 30 years before we dig ourselves out of this mess, if we even have that long. Actually, can I add a little caveat to that? Sure. That's not... That's not necessarily true in what you just said, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why not. American companies have sitting in in um, account that's equivalent that's the equivalent of about almost twenty trillion dollars in cash assets that they want to invest back into America. If you notice, and this is a dirty little secret that that the Democrats, when they're excoriating American companies, don't tell you. They may, they may export their jobs over uh, or outsource jobs overseas, but when you're and when an American company's in a country like China, they can't spend the American dollars anywhere in China other than that plant. So therefore, what they do when they make money, they put that money in account, offshore account. We have enough cash in our American company that would effectively wipe out our entire debt, and it would stimulate this economy in 90 Days. I heard a, uh, I heard a, uh, a statistic that American companies said that if um, if they were to slash the corporate um, income tax here in America, they could repatriate up to fourteen trillion dollars of that money in ninety days. Think about that wow, for a minute. I- it sure sounds great if that were the case. I mean, if we had, you know, whether that's whether that's confirmed, whether we can confirm that or not. Uh, I need a right. little more caffeine. Whether we can confirm that or not, uh, it, it's a great, you know, it would be a great idea if that were possible and if that could happen. I mean, it, that we have possible outs to that is is good to know. Uh, but what right. we're looking at right now. And we certainly would need it. Uh, what was it? California is 
their employment is about 10%. Unemployment? Unemployment is 10 point something percent, which means one, one in 10 people in the state of California is currently unemployed. Mm. Now, why why am I bringing this up and linking it to up to pro life issue? Because unemployment and the lack of ability of the average American wage earner to be able to provide for himself and his family, or herself and her family, is a pro life issue because there are needs that are life threatening to be met. When you are unemployed, when the the state of the country has high unemployment, you do have more people on welfare, and we see that. You do have more people living under the dictates of the federal government, and we see that. And what is the federal government trying to dictate? Everybody's reproductive freedom. So far from, let me just say this way. This this narrative that is being pushed by most liberal, most Democrat administrations that says um, we want people to we want to support women's health and reproductive choice and reproductive freedom and all of that um, is like any other rhetoric that comes from a grand liberal plan. It is not as advertised when it actually comes to reality. It actually, like everything that happens with liberal plans, works the opposite way of how it's being sold to the American people. So the welfare state is supposed to help people. It's supposed to feed children. It's supposed to be a hand up out of poverty. What happens instead? It is a cesspool of cycling poverty and dependence on government welfare. It creates the very problem that it tries to solve. Now, this, with the Congress talking about pushing our debt even higher, is only part of the problem, which makes it, since it is part of the problem, which makes it a pro-life issue. The health Mm -hmm. of our economy is directly tied to the health, the physical health of the people in the country. We're going to see more people being taken advantage of by government programs pretending to help people when they are in a state of financial need. The best way to break free from government dependency is to have a job. And who's sitting on the ability of the American public to get get jobs and produce jobs? Right now, it is the federal government. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, so what greater example than that is the threat to a company like Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby is uh, trying to fight the Obamacare HHS mandate that says it has to provide all its full-time employees with health insurance that also covers contraception, which is an added added expense. Mm -hmm. And the reason why this is such a big deal is that contraception is a 
<clears throat> a personal reproductive choice. Mm-hmm. Right. And here we are. I, I, I'm sorry. I thought liberals were all about choice. But, again, I guess they're not. Because if you're Hobby Lobby, you're being uh, forced to pay for something that is somebody else's choice and not your own. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why it makes any sense for an insurance company to, to cover birth control that men and women have to buy uh, because when was the last time a man needed birth control pills? Right. So why That's should he have to pay for birth control pills that he doesn't have to take? And why should the company that employs him have to pay for that particular insurance policy that forces everybody to buy, to pay for, whether you need them or not, birth control pills? Mm-hmm. Plus, this is, this is aside from the fact that Obamacare has that uh, abortion funding mandate to it. One dollar of everybody's paycheck per month, anybody who earns a paycheck, goes into a gigantic flush fund, which is labeled for Planned Parenthood. Well, it's not labeled exactly for Planned Parenthood. It is labeled for funding abortions. Mm -hmm. Ergo, a lot of that money is going to Planned Parenthood for abortions. Um, So much for choice. Why is this a pro-life issue? I think that's very fairly obvious. The American public has been never had had to fund abortions via the state. They've never had to fund contraception via the state. But now through this Obamacare legislation, health control that I call, everybody is going to be forced to, businesses and and employees alike. So Hobby Lobby had a measure of success where a judge said, no, you don't have to comply with the, the HHS mandate. And what does the Obama administration do in response? It drags them right back into court to make them do it anyway. So this is going up to the Supreme Court. This is not over yet with Hobby Lobby. Uh, In the end, if they are forced to comply, what's going to happen? What are conscientious people going to do? Well, you'll have about, let's see, how many people work for Hobby Lobby? A hundred and something thousand people will be unemployed. He already said he's going to shut the company down. And personally, I I don't... I don't blame them, but maybe that is what it's going to take. Because do you know what that would do to the American economy if you have a company, a major American company like that, that suddenly lays off a hundred and what I think it's like 144,000 or whatever it is at once, that would one that would send the stock market probably down about seven or eight hundred points. It will it would be a electric jolt. But right. maybe and, that's what needs I need to remind everybody that Hobby Lobby is not alone. They're the one they're the biggest uh private uh Christian owned retail company that is involved in this. But we have plenty of private institutions, colleges, private colleges, right. and other other institutions that are also fighting the HHS mandate, uh, as, as well as 
businesses that are affiliated with the Catholic Church. They are like a ministry of, of Catholic, uh, run by Catholics, I mean, and they are not going to comply with the contraceptive mandates, and they're not going to comply with Obamacare. And so we're not going to just see Hobby Lobby go away, potentially, but many, many others. And so this is a very pro-life issue because it affects so many people on a life or death issue. If you are, if your child is dependent on certain medications and you need a job to be able to pay for it, your child is dependent on you having a job. And if you work for a company that the Obama administration is pressuring to do unethical things like fund contraception when it doesn't want to, then they're mm-hmm. going to have to make a choice. And that is a that is a wrong choice. Like I was going to say that President Obama has it's a false choice. False choice. A parent should not have to choose between his job and his child's health. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, and that is you know, just like the others. Government needs to step off at this point. <laughs> I think that's part of it is uh this whole uh freedom of conscience. I think that this is what they're doing is they're they're kind of it is a pro life issue because they're saying either you comply or you you're gonna have to basically close your doors. And so it's it's right. almost a conversion of 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 your opinion and your religious beliefs by compulsion of the state. And so they know that we are in a tough financial predicament and that um it's it's gonna be hard for these companies to fight this. And so um, right. it is definitely, I think it's a lot of compulsion um, to, to force I'm, people to go against their conscience. Hey, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to make a prediction now. You know, I, I don't know if it was fast-tracked to the Supreme Court or if they're going to hear it before the end of the year. I'm going I'm to make, make a prediction now. Okay. The Obama administration is going to lose that decision on the five to four decision, and the reason why it's going to be five to four is because, unfortunately, the liberal court justices never compromise. Ever, they have never compromised on any issue that was a matter of morality. But if it's an issue that is kind of clear cut that could that that really isn't a conservative or liberal issue, but it's a uh, but it's a just a common sense issue, yeah, they'll vote for it then as long as they don't have to be held accountable. See, that's mm-hmm. how that's how they do it, and you know you could be right, huh? You could you could be right about that, you know. Certainly, I, I mean, if it is a decision, it is going to be five to four, either way. Right. Sorry about all that. Right. So um, let's get to so there. I mean, well, I want to wrap that up by saying that all these issues 
I don't want to. I don't want to skip the point. All these issues are pro-life issues, including abortion. And we, as much as we talk about these things in the public space, in our news analysis, all our commentators in public, we talk about gun control. We talk about taxes. We talk about what affects people's employment status. And these are pro-life issues. No less is abortion. Mm-hmm. And I refuse. To, I refuse to accept that pass off by saying since abortion is a social issue we shouldn't talk about it um and there's no there's no logical reason to do that uh-uh. other than you know you just really want to avoid it so let's right. take a break right now we have we have our we have our friend Randy Noble on the line I don't want him waiting too long let's take a sh- very very short break and get back to him and talk about Oh, what all this means, what, what, what's happening in the Middle East, and what does it mean for us here? And it does mean for something for us here in the U.S. So we'll be, we'll be right back. When I find the right track. Oh, I'll come see one kind of fun today here, but let's go with this. listening to Joe Biden. I'm sorry, that's only so much I can take. So we're going to get back to the line here. On the phone with us is my friend, my good friend and brother in Christ, Randy Noble, who is the author of, uh, I believe this is your third book? Do I have that right? This is actually number number six there. Hi, Letitia. Glad oh, to I'm be sorry, able to spend my six. Friday with Yeah, number six. We're working on number seven as we speak. Awesome. Well, 
welcome back to the show. I know that you have had um you have started doing a lot of radio programming yourself on Blog Talk Radio. And you are you are becoming our kind of resident expert on all things that are going on with the country of Iran and uh kind of your contacts in the Middle East. So please tell us what 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 is going on <laughs> in in general. Well, uh you have you have been uh on air with our friends uh, Marzia and oh goodness, I I can't say her name. Mariam and Marzea, uh, authors of the right. incredible book, Captive in Iran, right. Yes, and we have had them on the show before. They were fabulous. And So tell us a little bit about what they've been doing and what you've been doing with them. Well, if you followed Mariam and Marzea, by the way, they wrote the book, Captive in Iran. For your listeners, they spent 259 days behind bars and Iran and the most notorious, uh, horrible prison in the world, Evan Prison. In those 259 days, just for the sake of your listeners, if they're not familiar, uh, they spent using the Evan Prison as their church pulpit, evangelizing uh, prostitutes, drug addicts, political prisoners. These ladies are the most compassionate, humble Christians I know, and they spent those 259 days not worrying about the fact that they were on death row to be hanged as Christians, but instead they turn Evan Prison into a church. They have been on a book tour for six months, unlike anything I've ever seen, from the Sean Hannity radio program, Fox and Friends Live, Mike Huckabee's program. Uh, they were just at Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York uh, with Jim Simbalia, a very fine author, and they're, I think, headed for a European tour soon. And I had the privilege to sit down with them for just 40 minutes just last Thursday, and they just talked about why, as Iranians, they did not become Muslims, why they found hope and freedom in Jesus. And then they just shared what they did those 259 days in Evan Prison. The prisoners came to them. They said, you're the Christian ladies. And they would pray with them. They would share Christ with them. They would give hope to these broken-down Muslim that are not finding hope and freedom in Iran. It's the, actually the exact opposite. So you're right. They're amazing ladies, and their life has just been totally changed. And, and you mentioned to me all on, in a conversation on the program about women in Islam. They're embarking on a new book. I can tell you that I don't know if they've started it yet, but it's in the works. It's a project with Tyndale, and it's going to be about women in Islam. Do you want to have them back? I certainly would. I certainly would love to have them back on the show. They have a lot of knowledge living there firsthand. They know the inner workings of the Islamic regime. They know all about uh, the tricks, the games that this regime plays. They're playing one now. Oh, it's a good game. And they're playing a big game with us and with anyone else for their advantage. And so they have so much knowledge about Iran. Yes, so... We had talked over the phone, and you mentioned, you know, the big the big deal coming up is that the president of Iran, and it's not Ahmadinejad anymore. It's um, Hussein Rouhani. Oh uh, uh, yes, uh, how do you say that? Well, he's slated to be a moderate, but he's really nothing more than just a rehashed uh, diplomat. He's a puppet. Remember, uh, your listeners right. need to know something about Iran. Iran's president is is just a puppet. He's a diplomat. He's a sly one. We'll talk about that. 
But the main right. man who speaks and you must obey is the supreme leader, and that's Khamenei. He has been the supreme mm-hmm. leader for over 20, 30 years. So if, for folks that may think, well, diplomatic change is coming, think again, because he really can't do much. And, of course, Rouhani right. is on the same page with Khamenei. They don't disagree on much of anything. Uh, remember 2009, the intense violence? Remember the number of yes. people killed, arrested? Well, Iran learned from that, and they learned that they have to speak a little bit different voice to the citizens. And so this time around, instead of Ahmadinejad in his disputed election, they touted out Rouhani as being a reformist, a person of change. It caught the attention of a lot of the voters. They thought, well, here comes hope. Well, what did they avoid this time around that they didn't avoid last time? The violence, the demonstrations, the death. So it was a sly move on, on, on Kemeny's part. And, again, Rouhani, a little background, he's 65. He's a lawyer. He's a former diplomat. He's a member of the Assemblies of Experts. Um, he's been on the Expediency Council and on the Center for Strategic Research in Iran. He's part of the Nuclear Commission in the past. And that's going to be a favorite diplomatic tool they're going to use. And the biggest reason why he's in office is the sanctions are hurting Iran. It's devastated their economy. And they know they have to play their cards right to get the sympathy of the Western powers. And here comes Rouhani. And he's right. on center and so stage he's now. Right, coming here to the UN mm-hmm. when they have their when they have their um, when They're, is it next month? It's going to be next week. They're going to get together oh, at the UN week. for okay. the um, the, right. the, the fall event, as we call it. Uh, one of the things your listeners needs to know is that the uh, United Nations has a special investigator for Iran's human rights violations. He has eighty or more pages of child executions, of political prisoners, of everything you can think of, oppression, uh, executions, uh, just, a, just a whole book on violations. Well, they, of course, they know that Rouhani is going to come to the United Nations to speak, possibly with President Obama. So what do they do to pave the red carpet entrance for a Rouhani? But just yesterday the release of over 11 political prisoners before Rouhani arrives in New York. Well, that sounds like a good right. diplomatic gesture, right? Understand something here. That makes people in the United Nations, perhaps those that have heard about Rouhani, look, this is a legitimate uh, diplomatic effort, right? They're trying to legitimize constantly the regime there. And so this is one way they can do it. Look, we just released 11 political prisoners. Well, I want to say a little thing about that. Ten of those prisoners... And thank God, two of them were Christians that were uh, arrested because of their involvement with the house church. Ten of them had six weeks to go on their sentence. This was not a huge deal to release them now. Uh, one in particular, Nazrin Satuta, a very famous human rights attorney that I've posted on my Facebook, that I've spoke out and, and, and told people about. I'm very thankful for her. She's the lioness of Iran. She defends the rights of protesters. She was in prison because she was acting against national security, translation, defending human rights. Now, she mm-hmm. had three years yet to go on her sentence, so it was a surprise to a lot of people that Nazrin Satuta was released, but we're thankful for that. We, we've been posting and praying for her as well. But again, let's, let's make sure your listeners understand the tactics of the regime to speak to the sanctions against Iran and to talk about the nuclear program. And Rouhani, he's a reformer, right? Well, not really. In his past, he spoke out against the 1999 student uprising in Tehran, and he was one of the reasons why my good friend Nazarene Mohammadi 
her brother was put to death. Uh, I remember hearing some remarks on your program about uh, abortion, of course, and the culture of death. Nothing can stand in contrast to the culture of death in Iran. Twenty-five years ago, this year, they engaged in a mass execution of political prisoners. Thousands, hundreds of thousands disappeared. And so they have engaged Sorry, in the culture of death is Iran. And, and since then, um, they have continued. Um, they, they have. I mean, it's no secret that Iran is one, that the government is one of the most cruel uh, and persecute, uh, persecutes Christians and other non-Muslim, uh, people of non-Muslim faith very severely. I mean, it is the sole reason why our friend and brother Saeed Abedini yes. is in prison. For, for no other reason than being a Christian. This is very interesting. I thought if they're going to come to New York, and Iran maybe will meet with Obama, wouldn't this have been the perfect way to open up discussions with our country by releasing our dear brother, Saeed Abedin, who this next Thursday will have spent one year in Evan prison, and they didn't do it. There's a reason for that. And I just want to mention to your listeners, next Thursday is a very special event for Saeed Abedini. This has gone worldwide, Letitian. There's going to be a prayer right. visual. Different groups, friends of NAGMA on Facebook, have organized prayer visuals all over the nation at the capitals, the government buildings of their particular state. This has gone as far as East Jerusalem. They're having a prayer visual for Saeed. And, of wow. course, including all persecuted Christians as well. So you mentioned Saeed, and I just want to also mention that we are doing something about that. On my Facebook page are all kinds of postings for your listeners who want to get involved in writing a special letter that will go directly to Hassan Rouhani, the new president. Please just go to the ACLJ page. It's called the BeHeardProject.com. If you go okay. to that, it will. you scroll down and you can write a letter. You can have a. It's already preset, and you can actually write your own, and it will go to Rouhani, crying out for the release, as you mentioned, of Saeed, who is unjustly imprisoned simply because he's a Christian, and this should not be. Our president needs to speak out for this man. He has never publicly said a word. No, so if no, he and, won't, and we I will. Think- yeah, I was gonna. I, I'm glad you said that because I was going to ask and uh, confirm that our administration has never publicly asked Iran to release Saeed. I mean, well, we've uh, gone so far Secretary as John Kerry, Kerry has right. Mm-hmm. He has mentioned it. He has taken letters from yes. uh, people like Nagne. He has taken letters. He's taken petitions. I think we're still filling out petitions for the department, uh, the State Department, to simply say something. Well, I want to give credit to the new new U.N. ambassador, Samantha Power. She tweeted his Mm -hmm. release and another Christian prisoner and give her credit for doing that much. But you're right, our own president who spoke out and against the imprisonment just a few years back of of the two uh, mountain climbers in Iran, I think it was, and one, right. a famous author, Roxana Saberi, 
uh, who's written a book about her in prison, he spoke out publicly for their release, but he has not said a word publicly uh, for our friend. And he is, and you know, I'm to me this kind of brings up a little bit of disgust on my part because he has had a, a year. Our president has had a year to say something about it, but yet he has not said anything about Saeed. He has not said anything about Benghazi. He has not said anything about the IRS scandals or the EPA or the uh, Social Security <laughs> Administration uh, scandals, yet he has had time to talk about Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman. Well, and, and he, he also came out and, 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 and publicly uh, put his hat in the ring about the gay basketball player. He took time to get on the phone and congratulate right, him. Right, And call, uh, who was it? Call Sandra Fluck on the phone during the 2000, before the 2012 elections to say how much he supported her. And, I, it you know, of amazing. course he's not going to say he doesn't have time to do all those things because obviously that isn't true. But we really have an administration that seems openly hostile toward anything, even even if it is pleading for the humanity and the release of a person, uh, of, of one of our own citizens, regardless, regardless of politics. He can't go that far. I'm, you know, it's very distressing to me to know that we have a president that is unreliable to the average American citizen. He only stands up for his own political ideology and he doesn't stand up for anything else this is very sad and disconcerting i wrote a blog a few months ago um called silence in the face of evil a great theologian a martyr for the christian faith who died under nazi germany for being a spy uh or accused of being a spy he was of course involved in a plot to assassinate hitler and he wrote many many and beautiful things from prison and I'm talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he said very bluntly, evil, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. It's a famous quote, but that's what's going on here. You're right to point out the different issues that Obama has been silent on, but this is the one issue you cannot turn away from. It's amazing today. I heard our representative, Clay, walked out of a presentation of some of the parents of the slain Benghazi uh, people, during uh, 9-11 last year, eight Democrats, right. including Lacey Clay, walked out of this presentation. How can you say this in nothing more than inhumane and despicable? What is wrong with our administrative, our representative leaders that turn a deaf ear to these issues that matter most instead of political agendas? And today is a great example of two of the family members of Benghazi speaking out about the death of their uh, loved ones, and they walked out in protest. It's unbelievable. Right. Uh, I'm going to take just a minute to read the names, and I want everybody to take, make note of the party affiliation of all these names that I'm going to walk uh, to read. And they are all, if you want to guess, they're all Democrats, every last one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, Representative Caroline, Carolyn Maloney from New York, Danny Davis from Illinois, Gerald Connolly, I'm sorry, Connolly from Virginia, Jim Cooper from Tennessee, John Tierney from Massachusetts, Mark Pokin from Wisconsin, 
Matt Cartwright from Pennsylvania, Michelle Lugin Grisham from New Mexico, Peter Welch from Vermont, Stephen Lynch from Massachusetts, Stephen Horsford from Nevada, Tammy Duckworth from Illinois, Tony Cardenas from California, William Lacey Clay from Missouri, and Eleanor Holmes Norton from D.C. Uh, I I don't know. I I mean, if it's not overwhelmingly clear that there is a party that is for major injustice, uh, (laughs) I I think their actions speak louder than their words, and their actions contradict their words. You know, this is not a political issue, Um, Leticia. This is about human beings. But but what I'm sorry, but. It's I wanted to being. point out the fact that we have we have a set of people that are aligned on one side of the aisle that would rather sweep death, human death under the rug to achieve a certain agenda um, than than acknowledge that some things are above their religion and politics. So it's not for me. It's not for me. Or not a politi- pol- political issue. It is for them. Everything is about politics, and nothing is sacred. You wouldn't think that your own government would turn a deaf ear to the the sad, tragic death that could have been avoided. There was help that could have been dispatched to them. And there's an investigation that will never end. Thank God for our representatives that want to push this issue and never give up on it. When we just passed by last week, 9-11, we just remembered the 3,000 people that perished. And then we come to this 9-11 incident at Benghazi. And unanimous unity on 9-11, Democrats and Republicans, during a time, a crisis in our life, you well remember I do 12 years ago, there was real unity there for a while. But on the issue of these gentlemen from Benghazi, can you believe that our representatives, Democratic representatives, would turn a deaf ear and walk out? It's hard for me to believe that. And they shouldn't. This is a very, this is a disgraceful act that is unbecoming of any person sitting in office, no matter how, no matter how their political leanings. It seems like they are unable to remove their politics. From doing the basic responsibility of finding out, finding the inju- rooting out the injustice that caused these men to die. Of course, I think there's a gigantic reason uh, in, for that that our white our White House administration is is uh, I knee deep eyebrow deep I should say eyebrow deep in helping to cause the tragedy at, in Benghazi, and so I think they're not going to touch it with a ten foot pole. But to act this way with such disrespect for people who the families who lost their loved ones is is terrible. It is just a terrible and it is not it is it goes right in line with, you know, the president having to to continue to go on his little party on Sunday after the shooting that happened in, in DC. I, I think And the tragedy not, goes on, yeah. You mentioned yeah. the tragedy and the disrespect. Um I'm about to change the subject on you which issue just about a week or so ago. Saeed's little daughter, Rebecca, turned seven without her dad. And mm-hmm. and Negma is a very, very, very strong Christian lady, and, and she publicly said on Facebook how she was just choked in tears on that day. Uh, if you ever watch Negma when she gives speeches and she talks about her faith, she's just so bold and courageous. 
but that disrespect I'm sure she feels when her own daughter couldn't celebrate her birthday with her father. And part of that anger inside of her is, and the disappointment is that our president, if he would stand up, the leader of the free world, and say to Iran, I demand that you release this man, this is the president, the leader of the free world. I, I think that Iran would pay attention to that because that's our president. And he's saying, this is enough. He's done no wrong. He's a Christian. Let him go. And, and, and you can imagine the hurt of the silence when I just gave you an example. It hurts. Just like these families of the Benghazi victims, it hurts when our leaders don't support us, we the people, anymore. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and so the prayer event is next week. And they next can find Thursday. this information through next Thursday. They can people can find this information online at the at ACLJ.org and then she has the Facebook page for Saeed. Yeah, Negma Abedini, A B E D I N I. And of course my Facebook page, Randy L. Noble, N O B L E. They can come right to my page. Um, I will have a special day just set aside for that. It's going to start at 12 noon, depending on your time zone. Um, Some times will be a little bit different, um, but that's kind of the time they've slated, from 12 noon till about 2. And Nygma just called out for every person that's actually uh, having this prayer rally, coordinating it, Mm -hmm. to invite the media and to invite uh, other pastors of other churches to make this uh, a very very full event that – and we're we're speaking out not only for Saeed, but we're also speaking out for the, the the millions of persecuted Christians all over the world, calling attention to their plight for freedom. Um, and so it's next Thursday, September 26th, and uh, it, it's going to be an amazing day. We're really believing that God is going to use this event to, to speak to Iran about the atrocities mm-hmm. of holding Saeed and and other people that don't belong there. They've done no wrong. So I encourage anybody to find out more information, and I know for me that I will be praying. I know that um, you know PLFR hosts will be keeping Saeed in prayer because this has been it has been a year too long. I mean, for the for for the Iranian government to out and out just imprison an American citizen just for being a Christian is is horrible. I mean, I think I, I don't think that it happens. Um, I think maybe they they got into a situation they can't back out of. I know it's now a political thing, and it's just a mess. It is a big political so, thing. Saeed was once a Muslim, Letitia, and he converted right. to Christianity while in Iran. He was a member of a house church movement. So they're looking back years ago, and that's what they're yeah. using this as a tool. And they're saying that's acting against national security. So think of it. If you're a Christian in Iran that was once a Muslim, they see that as a threat to security. But when he mm-hmm. was going to Iran in his official capacity this last year, he wasn't going to do any proselytizing. He was going to help build an orphanage. He even had permits mm-hmm. from the government. So this has turned into a huge, huge political issue. But I'm going to tell you something. Last week our friend Megma was at Liberty University during their Global Missions Week uh, at a convocation, and she spoke, and I didn't know this specifically, but since his imprisonment, uh, the Lord has used Saeed in such a mighty way that he has spoke to many, many Muslims there, and 30 of them have, be, have converted to Christianity. They've become followers of Jesus. Praise so God, God is, is, is using Saeed's suffering in an amazing way. Uh, he still suffers for the internal bleeding, and, and every once in a while he will faint from it. They, they did treat him for it, but they gave him some antibiotics or pills that really didn't make a difference. 
And that's kind of the way they treated Mariam and Marzea in prison. They, they really didn't medically attend to them the right way. Mm-hmm. But but God has usually used him mightily in prison. He has become a spokesman for Jesus there. And, and, and you know, reading the Bible, you see Paul imprisoned most of his ministry. God mightily used him. So, yes, um, we, we're having this prayer vigil next Thursday. It's it's going to be, an earth, I, I believe, an earth-shattering event. Uh, as millions of Christians cry out uh, for the release of Saeed. Excellent, excellent. Um, so go online and find out that information. And I wanted to move on and talk about your book. Oh, okay. And sure. Like your other book, like your other books, they are written and they're aimed at readers um, from overseas, right? Right, and most of my books I write, and you can find a list of those books just by going to Amazon.com, just type in my name, Randy L. Noble. Somehow when you put the L in, it comes to me faster. And this latest book is is once again written from the heart to Muslims. My books are written to Muslims. Um, they are on my heart all the time. And, of course, there is a lot of Muslims, of course, in Iran. And then this latest book is called Tears in a Bottle. It's seeing through their eyes, seeing through the eyes of Muslims. It's based on Psalm 56, 8, where God says he cares about our tears. He keeps them in his bottle. Um, But it's about a friendship between a Christian woman and a Muslim woman. It's a story of Esther. She's an Iranian. This is kind of a sequel to my last, one of my last books, Shining Star. Esther comes to New York during the Moss controversy. So while this is a fictional book, it has a historical pinning. And as she comes from Iran to New York City looking for a better life, looking for more freedom, instead she gets a lot of hatred and discrimination. And the issue is the building of the mosque by the World Trade Center Memorial. And so when she comes there, she receives a lot of bitterness and hatred. And so she's fighting that battle. But in my book, she's also fighting a battle of being an abused Muslim woman. Her, her, her husband treats her horribly and keeps her uh, under his strength and his power. So she's facing all these issues, but one day in Central Park, she meets a Christian lady. And the book is about the friendship that we can forge with Muslims. Uh, We could talk about the violent aspects of Islam, because it's certainly true all over the Middle East. There's no doubt about that. There's the radical Islam. We could talk about the the issue of women and, and how women are treated in Islam. And we could talk about all those issues, but in this book I focus on the most important issue that doesn't build walls between Muslims and Christians, and that is the love of God in Christ. And that's the issue in this book, is how we can forge friendships with Muslims, Mm -hmm. talking about the issue that matters the most. Because Islam is empty, it's works-oriented, it's rule-oriented, and the difference is Christianity is not. It's about a relationship, a love relationship. So this is a book near and dear to my heart where I try to focus in on Muslims and and some of the discrimination and hatred, the wrong labels they receive, like every Muslim is a terrorist. I try to address that from a fair perspective and show that the most important thing you and I as Christians can engage in with Muslims is the issue of love, the love of God, the unconditional love. And that's really what this book, Tears in a Bottle, Seen Through Their Eyes, is really all about. Wow. So, so, what is your purpose in writing this? I guess you could call it contemporary historical fiction. 
Uh, since, I mean, this is a this is a novel. This is a story. This isn't actual. Uh, there aren't. You know, it's not actual people um, that you're talking about. But it's adapted from you know experience of of real historical events. Um, what what do you want people to know when they read this book? It's aimed at most. You're you're kind of subtly aiming it at a Muslim audience. What are you wanting to convey to them? Well. Early on when I started writing my books to Muslims, I thought it's going to sit on the shelves and, you know, it's hardly something that most people are going to purchase. It's controversial. But the Lord opened up an incredible avenue where I can talk to friends in Iran and all over the world through the Internet and on Facebook. And what I do is I send them PDF files of these books free. I want them to get the message. And so I've sent the uh, Here's in a Bottle and the Rose of Nehru's and all of my books to my friends in Iran and to my Muslim friends throughout Asia, which is Malaysia and Indonesia. And the message, the main message I, I really stress in every book is, is the word love relationship. And because the average Muslim is, looks upon them as a slave to Allah, and that they will appear before Allah Judgment Day based on their good works versus their bad, that's if they are good enough, and they can enter into paradise. But most Muslims never have any assurance that that's going to happen. But the message of the gospel is, all who believe on Christ have, present tense, have eternal life. Have that assurance. Not based on any good works that we do, but based upon what Jesus did for us on the cross over 2,000 years ago. So the message in every book and it's written in different ways to not be preachy to them, but to illustrate God's love and commitment to them in an unconditional sense. The Muslims don't understand that. They only understand one thing, Ramadan, fast, give to the poor, work, work, serve, and work. And maybe if I'm good enough, Allah will give me paradise. They have no hope. And so this is what I write my books for, is to give them a real hope. Wow, that's excellent. And so you were talking to me a little bit about um, reactions you've had to the way that your approach to loving Muslims um, that some people may may disagree with, that you're being too nice or you're being uh, way too generous and not dealing with some of the the uh, I guess the human rights issues that are kind of inside Islam. So tell me why. Tell me a little bit about that aspect since we were talking. Well, about like that I earlier. said before, um, you're, those are issues that are important. Uh, the Sharia law issue, the violent issue. You, you see it on the internet every day. Another woman, uh, another Muslim woman, who someone has poured acid on her face and defamed her, right. de- you know, destroyed her physical appearance. And those are things we cannot dismiss and skirt over with. But too often our approach, we talk about the, the violent aspect, the Sharia law aspect of Islam. And oftentimes because of that, and we rightly should talk about them, but sometimes we build what's called walls where there's defensiveness on the part of Muslims when they hear that. And, and instead of hearing our main message of Christ, they're hearing that. And so we want. My purpose is is to not ignore that or to be soft in Islam in any way. Uh, this is different between night and day. There's darkness between Christianity and Islam. I'm not part of the Islam audience that is trying to incorporate Islams and Christians together as if we're worshiping the same God. Absolutely not. My approach is let's don't build walls. 
let's build effective avenues of communication. And the most effective one way we can do it is to talk about what Jesus has done for us, to stress that he's more than a prophet. And as you progress in your friendship, you can show and demonstrate who Jesus is. It's a slow process. Sometimes Muslims, though, are very hungry and are wanting to hear what you have to say. It just depends on who you talk to. But I have found when I talk to Muslims online and through Facebook or wherever, I always tell them that I'm praying for them, that I'm praying for them to have a peace and happiness. And usually those strike an effective chord. Muslims believe in prayer. Oh, that's very central to who Muslims are. So as you talk to Muslims and tell them that you're praying for them and they hear from your sincerity that you're there because you care, they're going to listen to your message more readily than if we only talk about those things in Islam, about the, the violence and other things. If we spend more time on that than what I just mentioned, I, I feel like we build mm-hmm. walls. And that's what Tears in the Bottle is about, to break down those walls and share with them what it means to know Jesus. Well, amen. I can't agree with that more. I think um, we certainly, I think, people in Christian churches need to, I think it's a risky prospect. I really do think people uh, are nervous and they feel like trying to befriend somebody from overseas, especially from somebody who's overseas, who is a Muslim, is really difficult because we find, uh, we, we don't find so much relatable, I guess, and it's it's kind of almost uh, a hesitation. I think there are a lot of people who want to make friends and be close friends with Muslims, and we just don't know how. Um, and I think your book goes a long way. This one in particular, Tears in the Bottle, would go a long way to helping give uh, Christians the courage just to just to be friendly in, a, in, a, in an appropriate manner and not... And kind of let go and let let God handle some of the more difficult aspects and and just seek that doorway. Just the first thing you need to do is seek a doorway into friendship. Well, in my book, um, just to to give you a little background, um, Ariel, the Christian lady, goes with Esther into the demonstration site about building the mosque near the World Trade Center. And there's a scene where Esther actually walks up on the stage with uh, uh, Ariel walks up in the stage with Esther and defends her as, as, as a Muslim, as someone that she knows is not terrorist-oriented, that she's a lovely person, that she's a good friend of. And then she begins to talk about an incident that actually happened a couple of years ago during the Arab Spring. Uh, if your hmm. listeners remember, during the Arab Spring in uh, Egypt, when Mubarak was ousted, there was all of this upheaval and you know, all kinds of violence. And one day during Jamar, which is the Friday prayer day for Christians, I mean for Muslims, some Egyptian Coptic Christians wanted the Muslims to be able to have the freedom to pray in the midst of all of this uh, violence and things going on. And they formed a human circle around the Muslims as they had their Friday prayer. Mm-hmm. And this is used in my book. This is a beautiful illustration of what we as Christians should do for our Muslim friends. Surround them in a circle of love. That does not mean love is blind to what is wrong with Islam. It certainly is not. But this love says, I'm going to love you 
as Jesus would love you with the compassion and the care that he would have without justifying sin, but reaching out with unconditional love. This is what the Coptic Christians did. You can see this photo on the Internet. It's beautiful during their prayer time. And, of course, things are so much different in Egypt now. So sad how Christians are being attacked. They are, and but you know what? A lot of the Muslims who are, by and large, decent people. They're not violent. The, your average Egyptian Muslim, and this goes for you know whether they're Egyptian or from another country or, or where, wherever we're talking, they are decent people. They return the favor, and as Coptic churches were being uh, burned and attacked and Christians were being dragged out of their homes during, I think, during that weekend where it was most severe, a bunch of uh, many Muslim men surrounded uh, the front of a Coptic church and barred the uh, entrance to the door in a human chain and uh, refused to allow violent violent protesters, mostly, uh, mostly pro-Muslim Brotherhood uh, people, from getting too close to the church. And they protected that church building and they protected the Christians that were there. And yes, I you're really right. do they think are, that yes. they're they're decent decent people. And you'll find decent people everywhere. And I, I really think it's the decent people that are most open to just having a human dialogue. I mean we're we can we can talk about um the merits of of Islam or over you know Christianity, but they are decent and they are open to accepting good relations with with Christians. So this is the reason I wrote I this think, book, and I like to point out your illustration is great. It, the Muslims did not forget what happened two years ago, and and it's wonderful to hear that there are those that are that do care about the Coptic Christians, that they're not part of the Muslim Brotherhood, that they're, like right. you said, the decent ones. Uh, and there's so many in our society that are decent. I work with uh, Christian Northeast. There are Muslims that work in the food service department, some of the nicest down-to-earth people uh, you could ever meet. And we have I have a friendship with them. And I just uh, I find that the average Muslim does not at all adhere to the violent aspects you see that we are talking right. about here. And in most cases, most of them are searching. Most of them are very, very spiritually searching. They've seen so much done in the name of Islam, and they're so tired of being labeled as a terrorist. Most of them are open. There's a big cost in leaving Islam. You can be put to death, shunned by your family. You can even end up as an honor-killing person, and those things really do happen. So put yourself in their place. They are attracted to Christ, but they're afraid to say much because of the consequences. So there are many hungry and spiritually thirsty Muslims, and I'm praying that God will use my book in a unique way to say there are Christians that care about you. There are Christians that see through your eyes what you're going through and are willing to talk with you. And that's the reason I call it Tears in a Bottle. God cares about our tears. It's seeing through their eyes. And if we take that approach, and I'm not saying that's the only approach, but if we take this as an approach just ask the Lord to use it in your life to speak to the heart of Muslims. And when we do that, the walls come down. 9-11 has given us an incredible opportunity. In this book, I call it The Healing of the Scars. It's an incredible opportunity. There's a chapter in there, not to give it away, where Esther goes to the World Trade Center one day 
And there's a lady there at the World Trade Center Memorial mourning the death of her husband. And I won't say much more than the fact that those two meet all alone. And I, I just really think this is a powerful chapter. It's a foreshadow of what can happen when a Christian has the love of God in their heart to listen to a Muslim and the two meet. God can do some amazing things to heal the scars. Amen. I, amen to that. Um, well, thank you, Randy, for sharing so much information with us. Um, I, you are you are an, you are one of the guests that I love to have on because you have you can express uh, those difficult issues. And we talk about issues in in foreign countries like Iran, so so contentious. <laughs> And you're able to distill for us exactly what's going on and um, tell us what it, what it ought to mean for us here in the United States and related to the life issue. You know, we, we really ought to be praying for the persecuted in Iran and praying for the real revolution, which is, you know, that Jesus changes the hearts and minds of the people of, of Iran. And I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that even in these greatly oppressed countries, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ exists. Um, it, it may not be prominent out of uh, persecution, but I believe it's there, and it's always a lot bigger than we think it is. And uh, an amazing so I, you know, thing happens to... in the Middle East, Letitia, following up on what you just said. God is using dreams and visions and appearances of Jesus to Muslims all over the world, and it's so yeah, documented that, that it isn't not just some hallucination. These are people like in Iran and in Egypt and in, in other places that have seen Jesus in dreams and visions and have left Islam. So these are oppressed countries, and, and God is not bound by anything. He has many, many ways of reaching those who cannot ordinarily pick up a Bible and read it like you and me. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it it, it becomes our responsibility as believers here who we live in our in our, our relative comfort because we are not, you know, we're not being thrown into prison because we are believers. We have the ability to get on the radio and talk about these things, uh, to continually pray for them because these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And they um, they just, they need our prayers so much. They need to know that we are standing with them and calling on the love of Jesus Christ to be poured on them and, and who, who they who they witness to on a daily basis for and, and the Holy Spirit to give them strength to do that. Um, so thank you again, Randy. Uh, I certainly want uh, you to be involved in uh, any future show we talk about. I think the idea that you have with uh, Miriam and Marzea to come and talk about women in Islam is uh, fantastic. I would love to see you on too. And we will talk about that in the future. Well, I certainly appreciate you giving me an opportunity to be a voice for the Christians and my friends in Iran that are oppressed, that want freedom, they want to live out their dreams, and they're under so much oppression and fear living in that Islamic regime. And so uh, thank you for letting me be a voice for them to find hope and freedom and ultimately that finding that hope and freedom in Christ. Oh, it is my pleasure. And uh, be back again. I would love to have you back again. God bless you, Letitia. Thank you very right, much for God this time. Bless. Thank you. Uh, Randy Noble, everybody. And so I want to continue on, and before we get to the stupidest thing ever today, and our, our stupidest ever st- statements and uh, blah, 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 all that stuff, <laughs> uh, I need more caffeine. Did I say that? Yeah, I did. I need more caffeine. 
Um, just to wrap up, this, talking about the persecuted, religious persecution, and the the fact that no matter what faith you belong to, religious persecution is a human rights issue. It is a pro-life issue. All human rights issues are pro-life issues. And this, just like everything else, should not be shoved under the rug or put in a closet or put on the back burners as something that shouldn't be talked about because it's just a social issue or it's a matter of personal preference or it's you know an issue between a person and their God. It isn't. Certainly we can all see that religious persecution, throwing people in prison for, no, for nothing more than their faith, than the faith that they have, is a pro-life issue especially in a country that executes individuals so often based on offenses of faith. If you're not the right religion, if you are seeking to promote your religion in any way, passing out a Bible, uh, praying out you know, in, in public, not as a Muslim or not as a faith that is the one that is dominant, all those things are pro-life issues. And so we pray, like we had said, as a Christian, I pray for that those people that are suffering persecution. And I also want to point out to the rest of the world <clears throat> that, <clears throat> excuse me, that this practice of religious persecution, yes, it can happen anywhere. I know you're, I know there are people, I know my detractors out there are going to say Christians have been involved in more religious wars than just as much as anybody else. Well, you know, it's wrong then too. Let me say that again. When Christians are guilty of abusing, abusing and causing persecution on others, it's wrong then, too. And the reason I can say that is that Christianity itself teaches the opposite of that. Very clearly, the teachings of Christianity, the teachings of Christ, the God we serve, and the God we follow, if we are to be more like Christ, we are to treat Christ as he treated us as sinners who are saved by grace. And we need to look at other people, acknowledge that they are wrong in some ways, according to our, our beliefs and according to Jesus Christ. But they are also human beings just like us. And we can no longer mistreat them and persecute them any more than we would want ourselves to be treated. It is the golden rule, and it does come from Jesus. <laughs> uh, it doesn't come from anybody else. So I want to I want to leave that uh, issue behind by saying if we can't talk about abortion in the public square, if we can't talk about it in the news, if we can't talk about it in churches, if we can't talk about it in politics. Apparently, all those places are inappropriate for talking about abortion. We can't talk about abortion because it's a social issue between a person and their doctor, a woman and her God, or whatever you choose to put place restrictions on discussing abortion then we can't and shouldn't talk, be talking about all these other things like gun control, like oppressive taxation, like uh, the financial state or the economic state of our country, like religious persecution. And on to one other subject Thomas wanted to get to, uh, the story 
about that he he found. And I'm not sure what I think about that, but I'm going to read this headline to you and and talk a little bit about what it means if it is true. So in an it's called a sodomy-based marriage legalized in all 50 states by a bureaucratic tyrant. Now, given the title, I'm going to take that with a grain of salt just because. <laughs> just because. Just like I take HuffPo with a grain of salt, I'm going to take this one with a grain of salt. And the first paragraph says, in an almost unnoticed development, the Labor Department this week ordered all employers in the United States, whether they operate in a state that recognizes gay marriage or not, to give health benefits, pension benefits, and 401k privileges to the quote-unquote spouses of homosexuals. Tom Perez, the Labor Secretary, made it clear that this rule applies in all 50 states, not just the 13 which have foolishly recognized marriage based on the infamous crime against nature. Uh, Yeah, his words. Uh, Okay, I think what he means is that uh, the, I'm not sure it was all employers in the United States, I think the Labor Department uh, had made this a ruling for federal employees, all government employees in those 50 states, and that the government has to acknowledge uh, same-sex benefits or or domestic partner benefits, uh, whether or not um, there is a state, whether or not the state itself approves of same-sex marriage. So I think that's what it was. I think that's what it is. So... um, it's not what I, I don't think it's what the title of the story says. I think it's limited to federal or state employees anywhere the reach of the labor department has, which is kind of well, there's a labor department office in every state, and so I understand that. I'm not sure it legalizes marriage in all fifty states by fiat that way, but we are moving in the direction of legalizing same-sex marriage in in our 50 states. It's happening in one state at a time. We've got 13 down, you know, 37 to go. And the debate is happening over whether or not same-sex marriage actually is an equal rights issue or if it is an issue of special rights. Now, me being a conservative, and understanding the conservative uh, point of view the best, this is not about equality. This is about allowing a behavior to become a right. Uh, Because homosexuality is a behavior. Homosexual actions are behaviors. The human being that exhibits these behaviors is still the same kind of human being as any other human being. And we, and our policies on, in the federal government or on state government at all, any type of government that we have, secular, yes, secular, ha-ha, should not acknowledge circumstances based on a person's sexual preferences. That's right. Revelations. Government shouldn't take into account who you choose to take into your bedroom and have sex with when we're talking about how you spend your money and what kind of things come out of your paycheck. That's how I look at it. 
because the opposite, which is to give same-sex benefits, is to acknowledge, is for the government to acknowledge that who you have sex with matters. People who are married, men and women who are married to each other, have the very natural potential to have children, and children are a state responsibility to make sure that the parents have what they need to take care of those parents, which means, you know, that's why I'm against oppressive taxes. I'm for more parental freedom and less state, state less statism and less state involvement. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I am for the state encouraging fathers to be fathers to their children and not prop up this gigantic welfare state that allows women to get away with being dependent on the state as their baby daddy. I'm sorry, not their baby daddy. No, there's going to be a baby daddy, but also a sugar daddy. Families need actual men and women in the families, not a state bureaucracy. And that is the way human life is lived, which is why same-sex marriage does not fit into the life-promoting picture. Same-sex marriage is all about sex. It is not about marriage. That's the problem. And the state has no uh, precedence and no real argument for acknowledging that and putting it into the category as it's just behavior just like everybody else. That's the wrong definition of marriage, and I will stick by that. I will stick by the right definition of marriage. So on to the most the stupidest thing of the day, because it's time, it's time I grab some caffeine. Stupidest thing ever, I have to come back to the state of Missouri where I live. And I did say Missouri, not Missouri, even though you can, you can probably hear that in my voice. Yes! All right, now, we uh, talked about this a little bit early, hinted at it, but we're going to come back to this. Republican supermajorities in the Missouri State Legislature, yes, both the House and the Senate, they fail to override vetoes from severely liberal Democrat Governor Jay Nixon. How did they do this, you may ask? How do Republican supermajorities fail to override vetoes? <laughs> the first issue that failed to pass, failed to override, was a measly 1% reduction in state income tax, which we talked about last week. It is Democrats who never met a tax they didn't like and arguing with these the entire legislatures, the, the floors, both the House and Senate, with the biggest puppy dog eyes you've ever known to convince people to vote for something, uh, not to vote for something, measly 1%, by claiming that it would be financially crippling to the state. 1%. Well, no. Which means the Missouri Congress couldn't even give back 1%. And yes, 1% is a largely symbolic effort, given that 1% is really not that much in terms of the individual. But you know what, if you saw 1% of all the tax revenue piled up high, probably lodged 
in the linings of the drawers and seat cushions in the offices of Democrat politicians in Jefferson City, <laughs> it's a lot of money pulled together. What this means is that Democrats aren't, weren't willing and the governor wasn't willing to give that money back to the people. I should say not take it from the people and the taxpayers of Missouri. And and if we were to pile all that cash, they wanted to spend it themselves instead. Well, 15 Republicans who first voted for the bill to pass, which was then vetoed by the governor, voted against the override to the veto. Fifteen Republicans killed that tax emission, tax cut bill. They're on the proverbial chopping block, let me tell you, for 2014. They are. <laughs> and uh, I, have, I have conservative friends who are saying, oh, yes, this is happening. Because thou shalt not become rhinos, even, even uh, rhino lookalikes in this. Our, the taxpayers in our state can use every penny in their paychecks they can get. Keep. Keep. We mentioned that unemployment across the country, well, we know that unemployment across the country is over 7%. It was only 5 under Bush. And it's rising. It's rising. It's seven point something percent, and it's rising again. And this dead cat bounce that I hear that our uh, our stock markets and our market forces are experiencing, it's artificially inflated stock market because of all the money that the Fed is printing, artificially pumping up uh, numbers with no solid fin- financial uh, foundation. Excuse me. To underpin those numbers, we are surviving the dead cat bounce. About you know the dead cat. So the dead cat that hit the ground in 2008 is just bouncing back up, and we're in the middle of that bounce. God knows when that dead cat is going to fall back down, but when it does, it's not getting back up. That's why they call it a dead cat bounce. Well, second thing, if that weren't bad enough, the Republicans, uh, the Republican supermajority. <laughs> And the House and Senate in Missouri decided to do it again, this time failing to override the governor's veto of a bill that says that Missouri doesn't have to enforce federal gun control measures. That means if the federal government, Obama administration, if the federal government passes laws that are sweeping across the country, that sweep across the country imposing gun control measures, that bill would have said Missouri doesn't have to comply. And suddenly uh, the governor vetoes that bill because he's a liberal Democrat and he's going to veto a bill like that. Again, a bunch of Republicans decided not to vote for it. And so the veto held. Now, the curious thing about this is that the veto, uh, is in re- all, as all vetoes are, is in response to the bill that was passed initially. 
and they failed to override it. That doesn't make sense in either case. It simply doesn't. Somebody is falling down on the job, either the first time or the second time, and which is which makes this the stupidest thing ever. Yeah, it took a little while to explain that, but here, here in Missouri, this is what's happening. This is the, the heartland of all things confusing. It's happening here. So I wanted to end the show by saying uh, this, this is getting back to basics. We are on the verge of a revolution in this, in this show, in PLFR. We're going to take things up a notch. But before we do that, we have to get back to basics. Pro-life issues are about all of the above things that affect not just people being alive, but the, the issues of their human humanity, their human worth, their intrinsic moral value, and things that affect people uh, the way they're treated. So all health care issues, Obamacare issues, contraceptive issues, religious persecution, honor killing, and, of course, abortion. All of those things are pro-life issues, and all of those things should be talked about um, and given time in public dialogue. And they should not be marginalized as if we're talking about something that uh, is, is simply, simply a private issue because something like abortion is very much not a private issue. Let me tell you, if our government is pouring 300, I think it was $330 million into Planned Parenthood, a company that, it's a business that does abortions primarily, then it is a public issue. It is a public issue. You're involved, I'm involved, we're all involved. Speaking of Planned Parenthood, one last thing. It is not the stupidest thing ever, but we needed to bring it up because um, it's just a little bit of deception. Just a little bit of deception on the plan of, uh, on the part of Planned Parenthood. Um, you remember that when, when Planned Parenthood came out and published their financial statements, I believe it was 2012. 2012 financial statements, they claimed that abortion is only 3% of what they do. you believe that? Does that seem realistic to you? It's only 3% of what they do. Now, I, hang on to that because I'm going to throw down another figure that is also quite interesting. According to their statistics, according to, to um, their own figures, 92% of the women who go to a Planned Parenthood clinic that does abortion, 92% of them go there for abortion. Yet, Planned Parenthood says of all the things they do, only 3% of the, what they do is abortions. The numbers do not work out. It is impossible. It is mathematically impossible for 
8%, only 8% of Planned Parenthood's visitors, clientele, patients, if you will, 8% to receive 97% of their services. The math simply doesn't work out. Now, they say it does because what they actually do is if a woman walks into a Planned Parenthood clinic and a worker there hands her a tissue, uh, they call that a service, so they count that as one. If they take her temperature, it's counted as a service, and they count, count it as two. If they get counseling, if they see a counselor, they mark that down as a service and count it three. And at the end, if she, if that same woman goes in and gets an abortion, they call it one service and count it four. So during a visit where a woman gets an abortion, she can have ten different services being provided for her, only one of which is abortion. So they count all these little minuscule things as separate services like taking your temperature, getting anesthesia. Other things like that is counted as one instance. So that is how they're able to fudge their numbers down and say, oh, abortion is only 3% of what I do. But I'm going back to the math. 98%, I'm sorry, 8% of the women who visit a Planned Parenthood clinic, visit Planned Parenthood clinics, sorry, need some more caffeine cannot be receiving 97% of their services. It just doesn't work out. So I wanted to throw that out there. Hey, have a good night, everybody. Next week we have a wonderful guest. We are going to get more and more into really deep, deep topics in, in, within pro-life. We are going to, let me give you a, an overview of what's happening in the next few weeks just so that you will know. And you're going to want to come back and listen. Uh, we're going to talk to parents of trisomy 18 children. Now, if you haven't uh, heard about trisomy 18, it is another genetic abnormality that kids are born with extra chromosomes. It's usually fatal uh, at birth or soon after birth, but we have had many parents, including pres former presidential candidate Rick Santorum, whose children have been born with trisomy 18, who have lived far beyond what doctors have projected they would live to, and these children are valuable members of human, the human community regardless. But as with many, many genetic disorders, many abnormalities, parents with kids in utero that have these abnormalities are pressured and pressured to abort. Well, those human lives are just as important. We're going to talk to parents of trisomy 18 children and learn their stories and really see the humanity of their children uh, through their experiences. Not only that, we're going to talk about environmentalism. Yes, environmentalism and global warming. You thought it was not a pro-life issue, but it is. Oh, yes, it is. So come back. We're going to talk to E. Calvin Beisner uh, in the weeks to come next month about how global warming is a pro-life issue and affects pro-life issues that you already know about. So until next week, please come back. 
and see us again. Listen to us again. Don't forget to call. The number to call in, as always, is, uh, sorry, should I give that out? And, oh, I need more caffeine. 760-542-3907. Hey, good night, everybody. And have a great week. Come back next time. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Friday.